Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. Um, I'm your host this week, Dave Gibney, and with me I've got my co-host, as always, Claire O'Connor. Um, we have two great guests here uh, today. Uh, in particular, we have Sinead Redmond, who's an activist and uh, a great online contributor. And we've got Owen O'Brien, TD, for uh, Dublin Midwest. Is that right, Owen? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, um, okay, so first of all, I'm going to go to the front pages of the papers. <coughs> Owen, what, what papers have you been looking at there? Well, Dave, I was looking at the Business Post and the Independent, and the, the, one of the big uh, front-page stories on the Business Post um, is Airgrid is now telling uh, data centres that if they want to proceed, they're going to have to provide their own uh, electricity supply um, for periods, particularly in Dublin, where the general supply is low, uh, and for them to be able to pick up the extra capacity. It's, there's a really interesting set of comments from Antashka highlighting the environmental concerns uh, that the over-reliance, particularly of the local authorities in Dublin County and my own local authority, South Dublin County Council, have with the use of data centres. Uh, and the article says that about 29% of all electricity usage uh, by 2025 will be data processing centres, uh, uh, which is a really big problem in terms of us meeting our Paris uh, uh, climate change targets uh, and moving towards a kind of a zero-carbon economy, uh, which, of course, calls into question local authorities who, who who have kind of economic strategies that are designed to attract ever greater number of data centres. They produce very, very little employment. Uh, uh, they're very, very energy and water intensive. Uh, the Business Post has done some very good work on their water usage uh, in previous editions. Uh, and this is just another big question, I suppose. And then the Sunday Independent, the big story on the front, of course, is, is the uh, Seamus Wolf controversy. Uh, and the whole issue of judicial appointments, etc. And there were some really interesting articles in, in the body of the paper on that as well, but I'm sure we'll come back to that. Okay, great. Um, Sinead, you've been looking at a couple of stories on the front page as well. Uh, do you want to tell us about them? Yeah, so I hit the <coughs> nine at nine on the journal.ie. Um, that's my go-to for my news. I think it's probably a lot of people's go-to for news, generally speaking, as um, media migrates to online more and more. Um, I also had a quick look at a story in the Business Post around the um, conditions in the Rotunda being linked to the deaths of at least three babies since 2017. We were chatting about this briefly before you started recording and we were saying that it's, of course, for anyone who's had any experience in maternity hospitals in Ireland in the last 20 years, which I think is most of us on the call, any on the on the chat anyway, and probably most listeners as well, it's, it's, it's shocking, but it's not in the least surprising. Maternity hospitals have been chronically underfunded for decades, probably actually since the inception of the state, um, and the continuing lack of investment in them just makes conditions worse and worse. Um, and again, appalling, but, but not surprising in the least. Um, there's also a really interesting um, link to a long-form investigative piece on the journal.ie on precarity in academia. Um, on social welfare, unable to buy a house, the reality facing Ireland's academics is the headline. Um, and there are two academics I'm aware of, well, a, a number of academics I'm aware of, but in particular, Theresa O'Keefe and Alain Courtois, who you guys will probably be aware of as well, um, lefty activist, women in academia, um, who've done a lot of work around this and around highlighting precarity in academia and how it impacts both on and the lives of people working in the sector, but also on the quality of education being delivered to students who are allegedly in receipt of free education, but of course, as we all know, actually paying through the nose for us. Um, so it, 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 the piece is about insecure employment in higher education in Ireland. 
um, how casual and fixed term contracts are having a detrimental impact on workers' finances, how people can't plan for their family or future. Um, and it actually has really interesting facts, interesting and kind of terrifying, that there's been an average of over 11,200 lecturers working on a temporary or casual basis in recent years across the Irish higher education se sector, which is just a huge amount. Yeah, it's massive and it's been a huge problem. And that's one of the reasons it's not just that sector, but, you know, work of a trade union. Um, we see it in many sectors, the level of um, precarious contracts of employment. And one of the reasons we brought in the Employment Miscellaneous Provisions Act, or we lobbied around that stuff, was on that precarity of contracts in all sectors of the economy. And I know that Sinn Féin are actually doing a bit of work on, on uh, updating and trying to improve that at the moment. Claire, I'm going to go to you next um, for your front page. Um, what, what have you been looking at? Yeah, so I've been looking at the Irish Examiner. Um, so one of the big stories in the front is the headline is no plan for festive home searches. And this is basically, you know, Michal Martin coming out and saying that now the guards won't be going to people's houses at Christmas uh, if they have people over. But, you know, it goes into a little bit more detail about what the plans are around Christmas that I think his, his language was, you know, people won't be going on the lash. And um, I mean, realistically, we still don't know much where there's also a little bit around people not coming home, not flying home to families, which is understandable. But I do think there's anger out there that, there was so little action and we've talked about it a lot on here around like restrictions in airports and restrictions on tourists coming in um so i think people get a little bit frustrated when they see you know tourism is kind of open to anybody that wants to come in with very few real restrictions i mean you're supposed to self-isolate but as we found out you know that the people calling sometimes are only calling them to see if they even had the, the right number and um, they weren't really following up on whether people were, were self-isolating uh yeah so i think there's a bit of frustration with people when they haven't seen their family all year and they they don't think their family can come home and those kind of counterintuitive measures are, are, are still in place um it, it, one of the other stories was lockdown sees child to parent violence surge so this is a story about parent line and it talks about how they have a a, a service called the, the non-violent resistance program and it's basically for parents that are struggling with with kids that are either extremely aggressive or become violent with them and they're the service needs have kind of have quadrupled since lockdown has has uh, come into play and so, since COVID happened. Um, it has some figures here, like really kind of frightening figures. They say they had they had thirty nine people use the service in the whole of last year, and so far this year they've had one hundred forty six people actually complete the program, and they have a huge waiting list as well. And I think it's just another one of these consequences of lockdown about the kind of mental health impact on kids and kids are finally really frustrating. And I say kids, this is from really young kids up to there's some of them are over 18. Um, and just the, those kind of unseen consequences that are happening within families and how kids are finding it difficult to manage their, you know, the, their emotions, their frustrations and the mental health impact. And it's having these could potentially have these long-term consequences. Uh, another story is apology to relatives of the Yorkshire Ripper victims. So, you know, we know, um, it's up there, sorry, we know, uh, Peter Sutcliffe died on Friday and he was obviously the Yorkshire Ripper. He he murdered 13 women and, you know, he was in a, doing a life sentence for the attempted murder of seven more. Um, a lot of this is around the language that was used. There was an apology by a, a police chief over in the UK around the language that was used at the time that there was almost like a value placed on the women who were in sex work and they were just constantly called prostitutes and uh, the women who weren't that were murdered were labelled as innocent and as if their lives were worth more. And... The apology relates to that, but actually we've seen the examiner handles it really well. I mean, the examiner, you know, writes around it in, a, in, a, in the way that it should have been. But we saw, like the BBC this week, use the same kind of language that was used back in the day. So just in terms of some of the things we do on this show, uh, looking at how 
journalism actually portrays stories and the language that's used and the the moral kind of judgments that can be placed within a story. Um, I don't think we've moved as far from that as we'd like to think. Small story there about Trump refusing to concede the election, which I think is just, you know, sparsical at this stage. Has a quote from Geraldo uh, Riviera talking, saying, you know, he told me he was a realist. He told me he would do the right thing. But basically Trump is saying he's going to exhaust every legal option to try and hold on to the presidency with absolutely no proof of any kind of voter fraud. Um, the story that grabbed my attention the most was uh, average Irish adult worth 166,000. So this is from the the central bank, and basically they've they're talking about the you know the the debt and the wealth within the country. But how they phrased it is you know this kind of average Irish adult has 166 grand, you know, without any kind of median figures there without any kind of acknowledgement. There's a small acknowledgement in the piece that, um, you know, despite the record average wealth, the central bank said it recognises the figures are skewed depending on personal circumstances. But that's it. I mean, I'm looking down the back of the couch and I'm about 166 and a half grand missing from that, uh, you know, from from that kind of average worth. But yeah, I, I think the majority of people I know will look at that and be wondering who's holding all the money that's, you know, that, that's kind of skewing that average for them. But uh, yeah, maybe we'll get into that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I saw the quote coming up on Twitter yesterday, the famous quote, uh, two loaves of bread, there are two loaves of bread, you eat both of them, I have none, on average we had one each, um, and it really explains the, the logic behind this stuff. We always, in, in uh, lefties, we're always asking for the median figure rather than the average figure, so um, we know 50% have more and 50% have less, and I'm sure it's a lot less than than the average that was given there. In terms of the Sunday papers, um, the front pages that I've looked at, there's some really great articles here on the front page of the Sunday Times. Uh, first one is politicians close ranks to spare Wolf the Axe and it talks about how uh, a majority of members of Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, the Green Party and also in the opposition, the Labour Party and Sock Dems are on the opposition benches are now uh, thought to be firmly opposed to the impeachment motion uh, that could be tabled in the Dáil or Shannon. Um, there's a really interesting article, a small one here on the bottom by about Boris Johnson he has warned that he is not going to become another Ted Heath by selling out British fishermen as Brexit talks enter their final eight days, as if anyone would believe that Boris Johnson would sell out his own granny um, for political advantage. But he now seems... While we're, while we're, while we're touching on um, Boris Johnson and what's happening over there, the departure of Dominic Cummings is surely headline news in, in a lot of the Sunday papers across the way. Uh, probably across the way, but none here. None that I can see. There are really? on the inside of the Sunday Times that talk about um, the debacle about how um, Boris Johnson's trying to reclaim control of the, of number 10 Downing Street. And you're just thinking, like, he's the Prime Minister. How has he lost control? Who is controlling number 10? And obviously they're, they're hinting at it being, Bar, uh, being Dominic Cummings. Um, but there's... Yep. Uh, the only thing that interests me in that story is the absolute state of the photos of him walking away with his cardboard box right out the front door. Number that 10, was I 100% mean. deliberate. 100% deliberate. Look, oh, standing outside with his cardboard box like a Victorian waif with the streetlight cast down from the lamp. It is hilarious. I got great. He's brilliant. Um, the, uh, the other two articles that are there on the front page of the Sunday Times, one is a bit boring. Croke Park is pitched as a new law court. Um, where they're going to open it up in the new year, I think, for for uh, cases to be heard there because of the space in in, in the um, in Croker. But this is the dinger. This is the story of the well, one of the stories of the week for me. And um, Gardaí lack power to clip wings of airport drinkers. 
Gardaí say they have no powers to stop people buying cheap one-way flights in order to drink in the departures lounges of airports, which have remained open while every other pub in the country is shut. Um, and this story refers to uh, a guy who post, posted on his Facebook page. I'll give it his name and, and what he actually said here um, in a second. The post was by Davy Doran from Raffarnham, who claimed that he and some friends each booked a one-way flight from Dublin to Gatwick with no intention of ever flying there. He posted, when the pubs are closed and the only place serving is the airport, you book a €9.99 flight that you have no intention of getting on to go for beers with the lads down there for dancing, lads. Um, and this seems to be a loophole that is going to be exploited more and more because they've just put it on the front page of it. Nothing new about this. Remember, it was train stations, uh, Euston Station famously, which is where people went for their, their Good Friday drinks because, of course, those uh, uh, trains and, and bars and train stations also had an exemption. So this is just the latest in a, in a long line of, of traditional loopholes to, to get your pints in. It's, it's, I know it's a funny story and like it exposes two things. One, the ingenuity of the working class to find somewhere that's going to be um, drinking, right? But also the absurdity of some of the restrictions. And it says it in the article, like, um, this is not in breach of public health guidelines. According to Gardaí, who say that as, as long as people have a valid boarding pass and buy a nine euro meal, they can buy alcohol at airport bars, even if they never board a flight. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this. The, the, the opening of the airports and the lack of travel restrictions, which I know was just mentioned a few minutes ago, um, that has just, I mean, it, it's just ludicrous. Um, ordinary bars can't open, but you can go to the airport, book a flight that you don't get on. It's just nonsense stuff. Um, I'm going to go to you next for a story here on, uh, it's not actually, well, it's not actually a story that's covered, really, in the papers that I've read, but it's the uh, Varadkar motion of confidence this week. and. The reason it, I, I'm going to you as a story that's in the papers, but it's not in the papers, is because there's two articles in the Business Post, which you probably saw, and a couple of other ones, that are all targeting Sinn Féin, as opposed to the person who leaked the confidential document. And one of them is Cahill McQuillia, which I'm a bit surprised by. Sinn Féin finds that harsh winds blow across the moral high ground. And then the other one is by Pat Rabbit. Sinn Féin's aggressive doll stance not uh, uh, applied in static storming. So the week that you are, are taking on the Tanishta and taking them to task for leaking confidential documents and potential breaches of law, the target in the media is not Leo Varadkar. There's no analysis about that motion um, in the Sunday papers that I can see. It's all about Sinn Féin and how you shouldn't have the high moral high ground. So what's going on there, Owen? Look, I wouldn't worry too much about Pat Rabbit's column. Um, I stopped reading it a, a very long time ago. Uh, he has about as much knowledge of what's happening in Stormont as, as he did when he was a government minister. But look, I, I, I do think there, there's, I suppose, two ways to look at this. Um, for a very long time, um, the establishment uh, uh, turned a blind eye when politics was done the way uh, it has been clearly exposed to have been done with Leo's leaking of that document to the NAGP. Um, and for me, I think the key thing that has gotten lost in all of this is is that this wasn't just about a guy giving a dig out to his friend, which is part of it. There's a kind of an industrial relations element to this too, because obviously there had been a long-standing dispute between the IMO and the National Association of General Practitioners, and that battle had got very nasty. But also government had a clear uh, uh, policy of not engaging with the National Association of General Practitioners, something which was a mistake, of course. They should have always been included in the GP contract negotiations. But given that government policy and the position of both the Minister for Health at the time, Simon Harris, and the Secretary General was not to engage with the NAGP, 
Leo Varadkar leaking that uh, confidential document to his friend was was not only in breach of of cabinet confidentiality, in breach of the the strict confidentiality of of uh, pay negotiations, but it was in clear breach of government policy, um, and in doing so undermined his own minister for health and 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 that department. Uh, and that way of doing business, unfortunately, is all too common. Uh, and that's just, we've kind of shone a light into into one example because he was caught out. And I think, unfortunately, we missed an opportunity in our public debate to say, where else does this happen? Uh, um, if you, for example, look at what's going on in the housing market in Dublin at the minute and what is getting built when we look at, for example, the over-concentration of high-end student accommodation or co-living or apart hotels, that's all because uh, Michael Noonan, when he was the Minister for Finance, uh, and his then uh, uh, Secretary General John Moran, were lobbied intensively by insiders uh, representing the real estate uh, uh, investment industry, uh, who got enormously generous tax breaks. Uh, and that's, of course, had a really negative impact on our housing system and people's access to affordable homes. And you can see time after time after time, insiders getting access, influencing government policy, uh, and the outcome of that having very negative impacts. I mean, Claire rightly talked about the, 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 the average wealth figures. One of the reasons why those figures are so skewed is because, of course, a lot of that wealth is household wealth, it's property, uh, uh, older people, because they were able to access more affordable homes uh, at earlier stages in the history of the state, were able to accumulate that capital wealth. Uh, but a, a whole generation of young people can't actually access uh, 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 home ownership and therefore don't have access to that same level of wealth. So these are just more examples of the same thing. Uh, and look, if, if Carl McQuiller or Pat Rabbit want to focus their attention on Sinn Féin, that just gives me the sense that we're doing our job right. But let's not lose sight of the bigger picture here, which is insider politics is bad for people. Uh, and we need to call it to, to account. Uh, and we need to clean up politics. And I suppose that's really what uh, uh, the debate was. I, I do want to mention one speech that I think was really, really good. Uh, obviously, I spoke and Pierce and, and Mary Lou, but Roshan Shorthold's speech in that uh, No Confidence Motion debate was really, really good. And people should go back and have a look at it uh, because it really highlighted the core of the issues in the same way I think that some of our speeches did. But for those people whose, whose politics isn't necessarily aligned with mine, have a listen to Roshan's speech because I think that really nailed the, 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 the nub of the issue uh, as something which the hysterical responses from Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, uh, and green uh, spokespeople during the debate clearly ignored. Claire, you want in on this? Yeah, um, I think as is as is what tends to happen. The handling of the situation has made it a million times worse than um, what actually happened in the first place. I, you know, the Varadkar saying he doesn't have any of the messages on his phone, which should would be FOIable and not producing some of the documents, and the fact that he tried to just completely minimise what he did in the first instance was really bad. But what's happened since with the, the nomination to SIPO, so obviously the government have a nomination to, to SIPO, whose first job is going to be in, to investigate this matter. And the person that they've suggested and they've nominated is Geraldine Feeney, an ex-Fianna Fáil senator, but more importantly, was a paid lobbyist for the NAGP during this period. So she lobbied for the NAGP eight times in 2017 and 2018. I mean... I, like, I really don't have words for how inappropriate this is and more importantly, how blatant it is. Like, they're basically putting somebody that was involved in this situation, this position on, SIP, on, um, on the, uh, from SIPO has been 
open, I think, since February. Is, Pierce did a video and, uh, you know, I think that, that's gone viral. And mo these are the kind of things that most people don't really know about. They're not really that interested in. They find it a little bit, probably just a bit too complicated and a bit too bureaucratic. So it doesn't tend to penetrate a lot of the time. But this is just absolutely madness. Of all the people that they could have nominated, they nominate somebody who was embedded at the center of this story. She, she introduced Matt O'Toole to her Fianna Fáil colleagues. She brought them into the doll. She lobbied on their behalf. It's on the lobbying register. I mean, either the government didn't know this, which is farcical and obviously isn't the case, or they knew it and they went ahead anyway. And it's the blatancy for me that I find just so disturbing because it's like they wanted her on there so bad they were willing to risk the public backlash. And the, again, it's just this trust in, it's, it's a complete, betrayal of public confidence again and again and again and it's why people become disengaged it's why people just pull back from politics and think like asha they're all corrupt and i don't want anything you know which obviously we know isn't the case but that's why that kind of feeling penetrates because stuff like this that's so blatant happens and it's just yeah i, I was reading it the other day and i was like no this i i started looking into it but i was like this can't be right there has to be something here that i'm missing because surely they couldn't be this blatant in the middle of a storm like this and again i just think it's that the handling of these things tends to be even worse than what happened in the first place. And again, it actually opens up more questions than are ever answered. Yeah, Sinead, do you want in on this one as well? Yeah, I actually want to come back around to how you were posing it first and how Owen was talking about it in the media portrayal of this, that like the articles are, that are coming out are about how Sinn Féin is handling it and how Sinn Féin are suddenly like, running scared or whatever but I really um there's there's actually there's that piece in the Irish Times that was published yesterday about how Fine Gael have just gone full-on open on the attack on Sinn Féin which to me says they're running scared and um, we saw it before the general election which if you can believe was this year not, not like four or five years ago um which is what it feels like in 2020 terms um but we saw that before the general election this year as well that that finnegale saw Sinn Féin as threat to their traditional hold on to power and went on the absolute attack and it didn't work for them then so i don't know why they're just doing it again now it didn't work for them then people saw straight through it and people saw straight through the media strategy of trying to um depict Sinn Féin as somehow out of touch with reality so i don't know i'd like I mean, carry, they can carry on. It's not doing them any good. So good, good luck to them. But it's 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 nonsensical and it's insulting to people's intelligence. Owen, you want to clarify a few things here, maybe? No, no, just just a, a, a brief follow-up point from, from Sinead's comment, because she's absolutely right. Like one of the small stories that emerged during the week was that Fine Gael researcher uh, position. Uh, so Fine Gael had advertised for a doll researcher uh, and when people applied did, for the did job... Did you apply, Owen? <laughs> <laughs> No, I have to say now, the thought uh, frightens me. But, but <laughs> the task that the researchers were were, were set uh, was to do a, an attack paper on Sinn Féin. Uh, and in addition to focusing on on what we know uh, uh, Fine Gael likes to talk about a lot, which is the alleged differences between North and South, they were also asking the potential uh, recruits to identify other things that haven't been in the public domain. Now, in the first instance, this is an appalling way of getting research on the free for a party that has plenty of cash because people would have to produce these papers, which of course then Fine Gael could use. But it does show the mindset, and, and I was speaking to one high-profile political correspondent who shall remain nameless um, and who wouldn't be a friend of Sinn Féin and his, his publication wouldn't be a friend of ours. But even he was saying that, look, it's smacked up absolute desperation. Uh, and his question was like, who, who are Fine Gael targeting with this stuff? Now, 
you know, Sinn Féin, we can take the view that, look, it just shows we're being effective, that they are running scared. And, you know, if, if you're spending all of your time talking about your opponents rather than talking about the things that either you're doing right or that you would do better, I think that shows a problem. And if you look at the, the, the speeches during the no confidence motion, one of the things we were trying to do, myself, Mary Lou Pierce and, and Pa Daly, is actually highlight not just the process story that, that the, the leaking of the document was r- related to, but the negative impacts this way of doing politics has on a whole range of, of areas, housing, health, childcare, etc. And that if you want better outcomes for people, if we want to generate, for example, a fair healthcare system where people get access to healthcare on the basis of need, not ability to pay, or people can access, access genuinely affordable, secure accommodation, then you have to clean up politics. Uh, and look, I, I, I've no problem with people attacking Sinn Féin. It, it, it shows we're at the centre of the debate. I think what we have to do and the rest of the progressive opposition have to do is not get sucked into the negativity, but keep going back to people to say, because Claire's point is right on this, don't disengage, don't allow this to suppress voter turnout. Alternatives are possible, things can be done better. Uh, and we were very close to achieving that on the outcome of the last election. Let's make sure that we, we, we get that at the next election whenever it comes, uh, because we can't put up with another five years of this way of doing business. Yeah, and... Look, we'll go on to housing after this, but just a final say, because it is part of the front page of the Sunday Times as well today. The, um, you're talking there about insider um, people very close to government and, and the rewards that they get for being nice uh, and all the rest of it. And, you know, the appointment of Seamus Wolf, um, and, and it's only on the back of all of this stuff. So what I would say to people, first of all, is don't be d- distracted because a lot of these posts on Twitter in particular by, Fe- by Fine Gael are about causing a distraction and stop looking at the real dealings that are going on. But, but it, it, it says here that Sinn Féin sources said yesterday the party would not be tabling a motion to impeach Wolf, but would instead focus on how he was appointed to, to the Supreme Court when three senior judges had applied for that position. And yet when the government was discussing this, and it says it here, Eamon Ryan, who was, you know, the third in command, really, when you look at the, the, the layout of the government, he was not told of the interest of the other three judges when they were appointing Seamus Wolf. So why was Seamus Wolf? a person, a former attorney general, who had never sat on a bench to hear a case ever in his life, appointed to the Supreme Court ahead of three senior judges. What was that about? And maybe maybe you want to touch on this before we go to housing, but I know we've had meetings, myself, yourself, John Collins, about that referendum on Waterville. And I know this is just one issue that he he was a fig leaf for the government on because in 2016, he was supposed to look at the referendum on the ownership of water services. And it took four years as Attorney General, and he still never came up with alternative wording. Is this a reward? Do you think that potentially that's what's happening? Be, be, be very clear about this, right? First of all, th- th- there's an issue which, which isn't discussed in the papers, which is about the appointment of Attorneys General. Uh, attorneys General are never appointed on the basis of their comprehensive knowledge of constitutional law. Right? They're appointed because they are uh, uh, members of supporters of political parties, and therefore it's political loyalty and trust. And that's always been the way. And that isn't a, a, a critical view of a left-wing politician. Go and read the academic literature produced by our, our legal scholars uh, who look at these things and they'll confirm that. But absolutely, the, the appointment of Seamus Wolfe as, as a Supreme Court judge is a political favour. Uh, this guy's uh, uh, job as AG is, is rapidly coming to a close. He has done Fine Gael some service uh, and he is fast-tracked uh, through to a job uh, uh, without an interview. Uh, without uh, any examination of whether or not he's experienced or not. And 
one of the problems with this is is and 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 your point about John Collins's uh, water and public ownership bill is really important. Attorneys General and Supreme Court judges are the interpreters and the adjudicators of our constitution. The Attorney General advises government, and the Supreme Court then obviously adjudicates on 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 cases that are taken. And therefore, we should be appointing people to these positions based on ability, on skill, uh, on record, um, not on political loyalty. Uh, and that's a matter as much for a future progressive government as it is uh, for the current centre-right governments. So while, while we could all get fixated on, on, on the story of Seamus Wolfe and should he, should, he, should he not go, the really big issue here is how quickly can we reform uh, our judicial appointment service? How quickly can we put in place a mechanism to actually deal with members of, judi- of the judiciary who allegedly have broken rules or broken laws, if that was the case? But also, let's also have a look at the Attorney General uh, uh, and how we address uh, uh, that person, because how many pieces of legislation uh, have uh, been blocked uh, allegedly because the AG, who is not an expert in constitutional law, either this one or the previous one or the one before, because they happen to think uh, that something is unconstitutional, despite the fact that there's an emerging uh, group of constitutional law experts, particularly in Trinity College, really brilliant young scholars, who take a completely contrary view that, in fact, our constitution would allow much, much more progressive policies in relation to housing uh, and curtailment of private property rights when it's in the public good and when it's in in, in the uh, uh, interests of social justice. So yeah, that's why I think Sinn Féin's focus is going to be on those broader issues. Well, that's, just, that's, to, just to pick up on something that you, you guys said there um, around how it's important not to let these things disengage us from politics, I want to highlight as somebody who's an, an, an anarchist thinker that politics isn't just showing up to the voting booth, that there is community engagement, there is political activism in you know interest groups that are important to you, getting involved in supporting your local community in a direct provision centre. There's loads more than just showing up to the polling booth on once once every five years so it's not just about not it's so it's not about disengaging with political part not just about not disengaging with political parties but not disengaging with how we see our way to a better world around us in general absolutely and i agreed I think, yeah, totally. I think everyone would agree on that one here. And I, I thought earlier on this year when Saoirse McHugh stepped away from the Green Party, I thought the media's portrayal of that and the statements that, you know, well, she's leaving politics. No, she's not. She's just doing, she's leaving party political politics, but, you know, she's still an activist and all the rest of it. But some people can't see Absolutely. what you just said there. Like, they, they don't make those connections or join those dots. Um, and speaking of constitutional law and insiders and all of that stuff. We go on to housing. There's an article in the Sunday Business Post again about the fast track housing scheme delivers fewer than 700 homes, you know, against um, their, their massive targets. Claire, you might want to come in first on housing and let us know what's been going on because I know there's a, an important vote going on tomorrow in Dublin City Council around the Oscar Trainer site. Yeah, well, I think there's been a, a good few kind of interesting stories on housing and varied ones as well. Like, in the examiner, there's one about homeless services remain at full capacity in all areas and how uh, the, the new presentations are, there's a really worrying trend uh, within that across multiple regions. But then there's another story um, about how the Cosgrave Property Group uh, has sold 297 apartments up in Santry to um, a joint venture between Roundhill Capital and uh, Quadrail, or Quad, yeah, Quadrail Property Group for 123 million. And it's just this they all seem like separate stories, but they're all very interlinked. I mean, the idea that, and, and again, they link into tomorrow's vote. So there's a vote in Dublin City Council tomorrow about whether to gift 
prime public land on the Oscar Trainer Road to uh, a private developer to develop it. Um, and it'll have, you know, 20% social housing, 30% supposedly affordable housing, but won't be affordable to the kind of average earner, and 50% um, private. But again, all of those stories are very interlinked because a deal like the deal that's been voted on tomorrow in Dublin City Council leads to a situation like what's happening up in Santry. Albeit that's not on public land. But what happens in these developments is that... Um, you know, the first block that goes up gets sold off to a REIT. And for anybody who doesn't know, that's a real investment or a real estate investment group. And what they tend to do is a huge amount of those apartments then are actually sold back to the council, are, are rented back to the council through HAP. So the council end up giving land away and then paying through the nose to, to house people in those units. Um, and then we have a situation where people can't either, you know, people who are privately renting those units can't afford them, get evicted and end up in homeless services. So it's just how interlinked all of these stories actually are and how our dysfunctional housing system, um, it's just this cycle that is, I mean, the huge amount of money are going into these, these REITs and these investment portfolios, huge amount of it's going out of the country. It's not, you know, and it, it's, it's also keeping the, it's, it's keeping rents high and it's this constant market led uh, private developer you know massive landlords um way of doing business that it's it, there's no real change i mean we thought we were going to have change with darrell darrell o'brien i mean darrell o'brien is supposed to believe in public housing on public land but he was also he also said he believed he was totally against co-living and we've seen a massive change in the kind of tone around that, that how he speaks about that over the past while i mean i'm literally two minutes down the road from me and donna may that, that there's a there's a suggestion that a co-living unit is going to go up. I mean, it's bad enough when you hear in the inner city they're talking about, you know, student accommodation being kind of co-living and they're talking about multinationals having these co-living units. But the and, and I don't believe any of those are a valid argument in the first place. But the idea that you're going to come into kind of the suburbs and you're going to come into massively residential um, areas and put co-living units as if the only people that aren't going to end up in there are people who can't afford to go anywhere else. It's just, I have no faith that there's a real ideological change within the department. Um, so I think the, the campaign for, you know, for a vote no on Oscar training seems to be going really well. There seems to be a big kind of change compared to O'Devany Gardens last year. But I think it's much more important that we do keep that push and we keep the, there is a kind of political and social education piece around this that is that people need to, and I think people do understand, there's much more understanding around housing policy and the type of housing that's available um, kind of in the public domain that people aren't willing to accept these kind of developments anymore. So I would ask people, if, if you haven't already, contact your local Dublin City Councillor, ask them to, um, to vote now on this vote tomorrow ask them you know tell them basically your feelings on it why you believe this should be public land why you believe that you know the people who live around the area should be able to access the kind of housing that's being built there you know we don't want to see kind of gentrification happen you know again and again and again um, and also we don't want to see this development just push uh, push things down the road in terms of any kind of progress around housing we've very little land left we've very little of this kind of public land left and we need to use it and maximize it to the best of its potential so yeah um i just think now i'm and will probably want in on this but just there's a lot of different stories but they're all very interlinked because they all have very serious consequences on each other um yeah so that's me so i'll go to Sinead next you might have a different perspective on this from rural uh, ireland yeah, I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's more that it's like, it's kind of a, it's not exactly a different perspective in that I absolutely agree with everything Tara said, but maybe I don't have a local Dublin city councillor to get in touch with. Um, so I live, I live rurally in, in West Limerick um, and there's been a lot of talk or I've seen a lot of discussion in the last week, kind of the focus again on empty housing units and repurposing them which absolutely should be done, but there's a much broader conversation that we need around there around how that works. 
So you're talking, so the majority of people who are homeless are homeless around Dublin. There's definitely people homeless in other areas of the uh, other areas of the country. But if you're talking about some kind of rural resettlement program or rural redevelopment program, it needs to be looked at in terms of transport links, in terms of you know access to supermarkets, in terms of access to childcare, access to schools, instead of having um, people landed in the middle of nowhere, miles away from their own families, family supports, their social networks, because that way, like, it's out of the frying pan into the fire. You go from homelessness to complete isolation. Like, you, if the, the transport is so bad in rural Ireland that you, you cannot rely on it to get anywhere. It just doesn't happen. Um, it's, like, I know the Green Party think that we should be harnessing the wolves and sharing cars among one among 300 people, but that's not actually how it works. Um, like the closest shop to me is a six kilometer round trip walk along no footpaths on tiny little back roads. And I have no time in the day to be doing that. Like, and I also can't afford to do my shop every week there because it would cost me an arm and a leg and I wouldn't be able to even buy everything that I need. So I am all in favour of the reinvigoration of rural communities. You know, rural Ireland is absolutely crying out for it. But how that happens and how it happens effectively so that we don't essentially essentially create pockets of, again, um, deprived communities completely isolated and on their own around the country needs to be really thought about. Um, And I'd really like to see the the existing kind of shrinking communities in place in rural Ireland engaged with around that because, you know, people who are living rurally want to see their communities reinvigorated as well, but they want to see it happen in conjunction with them. They don't want to feel like, um, they don't want to feel like their culture and their, their community is being lost. They want to feel like it's being grown rather than being um, maybe overgrown. Yeah, it's it raises some interesting points there, and we've we've been banging on about this interconnection between you know travel and housing and services and all of that stuff, and 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 own you've you've done some huge work on this. You've literally written the book on some of this stuff. And um, what's your perspectives on what's gone on on the housing stuff this week? Well, first of all, the the Oscar Trainer Road vote is is really important, and and it's it's not only important for the community that live in that part of Dublin. Uh, it has a much much wider uh, resonance uh, uh, for for people right across the state. Um, the, I suppose the the origins of these land initiatives, as they were called, uh, come from the the, the very dark days of uh, Fine Gael and Labour austerity and the lack of capital investment for our local authorities to deliver good quality social and affordable homes. Um, uh, we managed to get one of those land initiatives out of that program. When I say we, I mean grassroots community organisers uh, and activists, progressive councillors from a range of parties and progressive TDs working together. Um, uh, and that's St. Michael's uh, Estate in Inchicore, where you're going to have for the first time a large-scale, fully public housing development on public land, 500 and something departments, a new public library, some retail and a small pocket park, uh, 30% social and, and 7% affordable cost rental. Um, we, we didn't manage to get O'Devany Gardens down that same path for reasons that people know. But I think if we can defeat Oscar Trainer, that will be the end of the land initiative. Um, and therefore, it's really important. It's also important to note that public borrowing is now cheaper than it's ever been. In fact, you can borrow at negative interest rates, which means the, the long term cost is marginal. So now is the time, both because we need employment in the year of COVID. We desperately need good quality, affordable uh, and social homes. 
uh, and government has the finances to do it. So whatever the justification anybody might have thought back in 2014 and 15 with this particular way of delivering uh, housing on public land was conceived, there is no justification for it. It's also a huge litmus test for Darrell O'Brien. I raised this with the minister in, in the Oireachtas Housing Committee on uh, Thursday. Um, uh, and in some senses, uh, it, th- this is his kick. Right? Dublin City Council is only even considering this because the previous government wouldn't allow them to fund Oscar Trainer in the way they're allowing them to fund St. Michael's Estate. St. Michael's Estate would be funded with an EIB loan uh, and some capital uh, uh, directly from government. So Darrell O'Brien could just put a stop to this tomorrow. You know, he, he could contact Dublin City Councillors and say, look, lads, I'll give you another option. Uh, we'll fund this exactly like St. Michael's. We'll take out a 30-year EIB loan. Uh, we'll put 30% capital up front. Let's deliver it as a fully public project, a third social, a third affordable rental, a third uh, affordable sale or whatever is needed locally. Uh, and many of us have shown that you can do that and deliver the accommodation, for example, at rents of less than €800 Euros a, a month for a two-bed or purchase prices of less than three hundred or 230000 in Dublin, which would be significantly below the, the current market price. It does go back to what Claire is saying, which is you know, the, the broad policy parameters of housing for the last three decades have been over-reliance on the private market to meet housing need, under provision of, of public housing on public land to meet social and affordable need. Just on Sinead's stuff, because she's, she's raising an important issue which sometimes gets lost in the debate, First of all, our housing crisis is urban and rural. Uh, when I launched the book, I did a tour right around the country, and everywhere I went, every single place from rural Roscommon and Leitrim to the urban centres of Sligo or Cork or Galway, uh, uh, everybody was talking about different aspects of a housing crisis. Uh, and what we need is, is, is far greater focus on both the, the rehabilitation of existing properties and the building of new properties in and around our towns and villages. Um, we, we, we can't have a, a, a case where we, we return to kind of large volumes of one-off housing for all the reasons that Sinead outlined. But if we can provide really, really good quality, affordable homes in and close to our urban uh, centres, and that includes towns and villages in rural Ireland, uh, uh, alongside the improvements of the infrastructure that's required, you know, we can, we can provide people with long-term secure and affordable homes. So I suppose the, the, the first thing is what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, if DCC voted down and, and it's looking like the numbers could could do that, then the ball is in the minister's court. And what we will be calling for the minister to do in the Dáil on Tuesday is immediately step in and immediately offer Dublin City Council the financial package that uh, they offered for St. Michael's Estate. But the other thing is this, the, the, the budget, uh, uh, which was agreed in October, does not represent a change of housing policy uh, in terms of the delivery of public homes. Uh, we desperately need a, a significant increase of investment. And I suppose I'll finish on this. Raise the Roof, which is a, a, a broad-based civil society campaign led by trade unions. It has community groups, housing rights activists, range of progressive political parties, individuals, students' unions. Uh, they played a very important role, I think, in 2019 in politicising people around housing policy. And I think that was seen in the election. Uh, Raise the Roof will have a housing policy conference uh, coming up at the end of November. People should check out the detail of that. And it is one of a number of ways of getting involved in housing rights activism. Uh, there's lots of grassroots campaigns. There's lots of, of, of other initiatives. But we need to keep the campaign going because while COVID-19 and Brexit have pushed the housing crisis off the public media agenda, it hasn't gone away. Look at the level of homeless uh, people uh, who have died this year, almost double what happened uh, last year or the year before. So. This crisis is, is growing ever greater and we need the maximum level of mobilisation across all sections of society to force either this government to change policy 
or to force a change of government so we have a government that actually invests in the in the good quality uh, secure and affordable homes that working people desperately need and, and on that like on the raise the roof stuff i think um, i remember correct me if i'm wrong on this one but i think i remember dara o'brien turning up to uh to one of the protests outside the doll as well in support of the uh, they, they voted they voted for the raise the roof motion in october uh, 2019 which called for a doubling of capital investments to deliver public homes on public land that's not what happened in the budget just gone. Uh, they added, uh, uh, I think, an extra 35 million uh, in real terms on what Owen Murphy had already committed to for an extra 500 social homes. Uh, so, you know, we, we have to keep the pressure on. And Fianna Fáil promised housing for all in their manifesto. Uh, if you look at the programme for government, it rhetorically commits to many of the things that we have all been campaigning for in terms of progressive housing policy activists. Uh, but when you look into the detail of, of what they're actually proposing, it represents no change. Uh, so we have a job of work to do, all of us, um, and we need to kind of up our game uh, to try and force the change because the consequences of us not doing our jobs better and forcing that policy change is more deaths on our streets, uh, uh, more people paying far, far too much to rent, uh, people spending far too much time waiting for social housing. Uh, and I suppose one of the things we talk about a lot in these podcasts is, is precarity of labour. Uh, that's matched by precarity of housing. Uh, and that's where all of this is going. And, and that's not a good place for our society, let alone for the people worst impacted by it. Yeah, Sinead, I think you wanted Absolutely. to... Absolutely. And just to... Yeah, just to jump in there quickly. We're actually in a position right now where we have a huge opportunity to change how we work and live and that we don't all have to be clustered around one or several, you know, a handful of urban, urban centres like Dublin, Cork, Galway, Limerick City to an extent, Belfast. We have an opportunity to restructure ourselves to smaller communities like, as Owen was talking about, rural towns and villages in um, a way where we can all work remotely because, you know, we've been forced to do that. Companies have been forced to let people do that and show that it works in the vast majority of cases, in the vast majority of cases that we, we can work this way, we can live this way. And it's, it's something that we really need to not forget about as the prospect of a vaccine comes in, which actually reminds me that we haven't touched on the vaccine news <laughs> at all. Um, but yeah, it's something that we, we, we can't allow ourselves to forget. We can live in a different way in all in all the terrible things that the pandemic has done it has shown us that we cannot allow that to slip from our agenda just just one point on that though and it's not that i'm at all disagreeing with Sinead, but we often talk about rural depopulation and in fact if you look at the last two census 2011 and 2016 the greatest areas of depopulation are urban centers dublin city center cork city center etc and that's because of course it's simply not affordable to live in our city centers so while I, I absolutely support and have long advocated for, for supporting the strengthening of rural towns and villages, and we have to do that, we also have to stop suburban sprawl. And we have to give people the choice to be able to live, work, uh, and, and uh, 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 live in our urban centres as well in, in a way that's affordable. First of all, because the population is growing and, 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 and we need to provide people with homes. But if we're to meet the challenge of climate change, we have to provide good quality, affordable and higher density housing in our urban centres, as well as the option that Sinead has outlined. Because while some sections of the workforce can do that remote working, as Dave will know, because he represents a very large uh, uh, sec section of workers who can't work remotely, uh, uh, they 
preferably would like to be able to live close to where they work and where their kids go to mm-hmm. school, etc. And I think it's not an either or. We need to do both. But the key to that is unless we start tackling uh, the speculation in land uh, and the speculation in the delivery of the wrong kind of residential units in our urban centres, we're not going to fix that. And that's why, for example, the Oscar trainer battle is such an important one uh, to reorientate policy towards the St. Michael's model rather than the O'Devony Gardens model. Yeah. Absolutely. It's yeah. about supporting communities and remaining um, remaining vibrant, remaining not decimated, not gentrified by either rural depopulation or urban centre depopulation, both for very different reasons. One, because people move towards r- urban centres as close as they can get, and the other because people are displaced from them because they can no longer afford to live with their communities. So it's all, it's, it's all, it's all about class, always. The class analysis mm-hmm. is, what, is what unifies unifies this this kind of um trend and makes it really important to focus on people's needs in in housing and in their i think as well what both of you have touched on there was really highlighted during covid because when all of those office blocks emptied out and people were working from home and nobody was in the city center the city center was like a ghost town so there was that there was no again no vibrancy there was no um no people around the businesses that were there and could stay open had no customers as well so it really just i think exemplified why we need people to be able to actually live in a city center and not just constantly travel into work um again i'd like to think that these are lessons that we're learning um i think when you look at you mentioned the budget there on when you look at what you know what actually went into capital spending as opposed to current spending doesn't give much hope for that because it, it the a huge proportion of what went in in those increased figures was all current spending and it's you know it, it's not stuff that we're going to see make a, a long-term impact on that i do want to pivot here to covid if that's okay um there's a huge amount of stories in uh, in the examiner at least in, in the irish times that i was having a look at but you did touch on the vaccine there and one story really jumped out to me and it was the the headline was leaders in the race to the vaccine and we t- touched on this a couple of weeks ago and it's the idea that we're in a worldwide pandemic literally everybody in the world is affected by this and we have people competing to to reach you know to get to the to the vaccine first there was another story about how hackers in russia and north korea had microsoft came out and said that um russian and north korean uh, hackers had tried to access pharmaceutical uh servers to get you know information about vaccine trials and the first thing i thought was like why isn't this information open source like why isn't everybody working together and that might seem a little bit kumbaya and utopia but i know there you know there needs to be stringent measures around how these things are operated but the financial aspect of this is just really stomach turning actually um one of the the heads of medicine san frontiers came out with a statement about wanting more transparency around costs the cost of the trials and the cost of the potential vaccines um you know the patents the data the licensing agreements and this is just so important i mean this is there is you know so some of the articles talked about how there is going to be a rush on you know what would normally be a three to six month review process on a vaccine now they said that the the exact same work is going to be done and the standards aren't going to be lowered but still i just think that when you have a situation where there's so much pressure for this vaccine to be released there's so much pressure you know to get the world markets and the economy back up um the the financial aspects just really murky the you know muddies the waters and i just think that it's um there's a much bigger conversation to be had again around industry um around uh you know again healthcare for good as opposed to you know just a primarily for profit model and this really exemplifies the kind of worst of it i mean everybody really wants the vaccine to happen and we want it to happen quickly but i mean again the idea that you'd have all these different companies racing to the the top and surely there should be one 
best vaccine. <laughs> like one of them is going to have less side effects than others. One of them is going to have a you know a higher percentage of um of accuracy, and uh, you know that's going to work the best. And I just think yeah, there's some really really weird narratives kind of popping up about it. Uh, also, just as well, you know, the fact that we were doing really well, the numbers had dropped, and now our seven-day incidence rate is starting to creep back up, which is, you know, which is a, is unfortunate. Um, I might be able to talk a little bit about the, the Northern situation because um, the numbers up north seem to, you know, really be kind of heading in the wrong direction. And I think I heard during the week that they're talking about, they're already talking about opening back up pubs and restaurants. Um, is that true? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so the, the, the incidence rate in the north is, is very alarming uh, and there's been a, a dispute at the centre of the executive uh, in the north. The UP wanted to open up much earlier, uh, uh, contrary to the public health advice. Um, uh, we were arguing very, very strongly that, that that shouldn't happen. And in fact, there should be an alignment of the approach north and south. Uh, there was a standoff pretty much for, for over a week. Um, uh, and of course, that was leading to huge public concern among uh, uh, healthcare workers, among families, among uh, businesses and, and workers. Um, a, a compromise of sorts was eventually reached between the, the other parties and the executive to have a, a one-week extension of the current restrictions. We didn't support that. We felt that they had to be in line with what was happening south of the border. Um, and it, it, I suppose it highlights one of the concerns, which is, we're a small island um, and uh, communities all along the border are porous. They move back and forth for family, for school, for work, uh, uh, for, for, for leisure. And therefore, it makes absolutely no sense not to have the same approach north and south. Uh, uh, there's no doubt that mistakes have been made in the north. And, and as a consequence, I think, of the DP's behaviour, public health has been put at risk. And one of the really troubling things is there was a majority last week on the executive to extend the restrictions. But the DUP threatened to use what's called a petition of concern. A petition of concern is a mechanism uh, that was provided for the Good Friday Agreement to ensure that on, on conflict resolution type matters, you could never have a majority imposing a will on a minority. You would need to have a double majority. But, but that was meant for conflict resolution type issues. It wasn't meant for, for a majority party to block uh, other areas of public policy, certainly not the, the adherence to public health guidance. Uh, so there's huge worry, um, uh, particularly along the border counties. Um, and that's a, a, a problem that's going to play itself out further. What we'll keep doing is arguing for a, a single approach north and south. It would be much better if the executive and, and the Dáil uh, were coordinating their efforts, if the two chief medical officers were coordinating their efforts. Uh, and there's been a little bit of a reluctance to do that from, from the government in Dublin as well. So we've more work on that front. Yeah, and, and I think just you've hit, you've hit the nail on the head about some of this stuff because there's an article in one of the papers, I can't remember which one, about Donegal when the rest of the country exits lockdown, Donegal is most likely not going to exit lockdown and that's its close affiliation obviously with uh, Derry in particular, um, which I've got, I'm up there uh, fairly frequently, I see all the, the numbers and the figures up there, worst part, uh, Derry Straban, worst part of the entire UK and Ireland um, in terms of the COVID figures and the, and the deaths and all the rest of it. And only weeks ago, there was no more beds left in the ICU up there in Alvin Hospital. So it's a serious concern. And by the way, people need to make the connection that people from Donegal go to Alton Galvin Hospital as well. It's not just for people in the north. This is the, the cross-border sort of sharing that, that goes on. I'm going to stick with health. And I think sometimes every now and uh, then... Can I just... Can I just... Dave, sorry, can I just touch quickly on what Claire was saying about the vaccine stuff? Because I think that has to be one of the biggest stories of the week. And what Claire was saying about um, surely there has to be one best vaccine. It's actually better for us if there isn't. 
it's better for us if there are several vaccines, all with several, all with um, similar levels of efficacy and similar levels of side effects, because that means that the distribution chain is going to be much more solid and much more reliable. Um, in like, short of you know public ownership of all medical facilities, which isn't going to happen anytime in the next six months, um, in, in a capitalist in a capitalist system, in terms of the public interest for there to be several competing vaccines which are all similarly effective um, and all have a different supply chain and a different system of manufacturing that gives us the strongest possibility of wide coverage of vaccination protocol uh, also on, like on the so on Pfizer vaccine which looks to have 90% efficacy and has an RNA component which is quite new in in vaccine terms um, I believe that it's actually the first vaccine being developed to use that mechanism there was a really interesting comment from somebody, I believe, in the WHO the other day that scientific honesty is going to be a really crucial part of any vaccine uptake. And that's going to be the biggest concern for, I think, all of us over the next year and a half, vaccine uptake and that people's trust in the vaccine. And there's a lot of problems that, that I see potentially arising there in that, historically speaking, in Ireland, there haven't been... Um, there hasn't been opportunities for the health service to be honest with people and the health service and, and to be open with people and pursue their policies of open disclosure. So there are people who are out there rightly with a distrust of the health service and a distrust of um, some of the things that the health service comes out with. So we're not starting for, from a good place for that. And we also, historically speaking, don't have a 100% great record with vaccine research in Ireland in that there were babies and children in Bessborough who vaccines were tested on um, without consent, without informed consent, without any information about what was going on. So while vaccination is hugely important um, and that public um, openness and public information is hugely important, we're already starting here from the back foot because we do not have a solid history of that in the country. And this is the time of the shit hitting the fan. And this is the time when that really, really matters. And so how we get people, and I think as left activists, all of us have a personal and social responsibility to start engaging with people around that now and have those difficult conversations with people about how this is important, how scientific literacy matters, have those engagements with people who are wary, with people who have concerns and move us all forward because we need to get beyond this. Yeah. Um, I'm going to stick with health as well now for a second and, and similar theme, um, whether you want to call it vaccines or not. Um, and uh, the, there's an article here, and this happens every now and then in the um, Irish papers where they come up with world-class headlines um, that you would never see anywhere else in the world. And this is the headline. Eviction hit hermit nun hell-bent on selling bogus cure for cancer. And the article is by Justine McCarthy, and it's, it's, it's talking about how a, a, a mother... Irene Gibson in West Cork has been selling a banned ointment that is promoted as a cure for skin cancer while she's currently going through an eviction. Um, so, I mean, the headline, while is 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 just mind-boggling, um, the story is actually quite frightening that people are out there selling these things that are banned in the United States. Now, if anything, any product is banned in the United States, you know, it's pretty 
fucking bad. Like it's not, it's not going to be good for you. But she's selling it as a cure for cancer. And there's activists in Cork who have taken her to court to stop her selling this stuff. Um, one activist, Fiona O'Leary, I think it is, um, it, her, her son has cancer and she's saying that this is a real threat. But I, I wanted to just, before we, we go off health, there's an article in the Business Post as well. Um, care was a vision, never a plan, and it's way off schedule. And it's from Tony O'Brien, who's the former chief executive of the HSE. And I hate when I read this stuff. Um, and it goes back to what we were saying about housing. You vote for a party to do one thing in the political process, and then they go off and do something else. But he's effectively saying the Slanticare was never envisaged to be a success or to work. He's saying that it's more uh, an idea that we get to. It's supposed to be over the 10-year period. We're way behind, he's saying on it, and there's no political agenda to actually get there. And that links into the story Sinead, you raised at the start, which is about the Rotunda uh, Hospital and how it is described in the business post as well. Um, let me get the, the headline. Uh, KPMG's report says facilities for the care of critically ill women are among the poorest in any hospital to date, is the quote. Um, and I just wanted to throw it out there to see if anybody had any, any perspectives. Owen, do you have any perspectives on the health, the Slanger Care article or KPMG's report before you head off? Yeah, sure. I mean, in some senses, there's a thread running through um, all of our discussions, um, which won't be a surprise to anybody on, on the panel. But it's, it's, it's when you allow public goods to be determined by the logic of private profit, it you get these kinds of problems. Um, and if you think about, for example, scientific research, there's a, there's a whole body of academic evidence that shows that, in fact, when you have collaborative, publicly funded scientific research, you get better uh, and earlier wins in terms of, of uh, developments in technology or in medicines, etc., uh, and it's something we need to return to. And I don't at all disagree with Sinead's kind of prognosis in terms of, of the best, you know, kind of short-term outcome here. But we do, do need to raise that question around why is it that uh, uh, private finance and private profit dominate so much of this? Solange Care is the same. Like, first of all, Solange Care is a plan. Tony runs wrong. Uh, and, and Louise O'Reilly, my colleague who sat on that committee, and Roshan Shortall, who chaired that committee, and met many other progressive members of it, uh, will tell you there's a 10-year implementation plan. The, the problem is government won't finance it. And therefore, in the absence of government finance and restructuring of public health provision, uh, uh, then it will remain an aspiration and, and, and that's a problem. And so it is with housing. Uh, and since I'm leaving, I'm going to uh, take the chair's liberty. I just, I, I want to plug a book that, that I reviewed in yesterday's Irish Times by a really brilliant English writer, Chloe Timperley, called Generation Rent. Uh, why you can't uh, afford to buy a home or, or, or even rent a half-decent one. Um, it, it's an analysis of, of the way in which the private market uh, has created an incredibly dysfunctional private rental system across the water in the UK, not dissimilar to here. But what's brilliant about Chloe's uh, book is, is she ends the book with a whole range of really, really interesting solutions and alternatives. Uh, and while I know you want to focus on health, and I'm, I'm about to bow out here to do something else, uh, people should read the book. It is really, really impressive. It, it articulates the views of generation rent, which is something that many of us are only too familiar with here. Uh, it highlights all of the problems uh, of policy over there, uh, but it also identifies really progressive solutions that have been developed by some of the world's leading progressive housing and land policy uh, experts and economists, uh, some of which we've been arguing for here through Raise the Roof and, and others. Uh, 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 so I couldn't recommend the book highly enough. Thanks, Owen. And just while we have Owen here, just before we go, we'll also plug Owen's book because he won't do it himself. And it's home, why public housing is the answer. Um, yeah, so is that still available, Owen? 
It is, yeah, absolutely. In, in all good bookstores, including Eason's and, and all your small local providers as well. Really, no, I knew it had sold out in a couple of places a while back. Um, okay, well, thanks for coming today, Alan. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Alan. Um, I'm going to go to one more serious story myself, and then I'm going to ask you two to come in with any other stories you want to raise. But on page four of the Sunday Times, there's a, an article which I would expect, with the, the actual gravity of what's involved, to be a front page article, and that there'll be a lot more of this stuff to come. But Crackdown sees a record 65 Gardaí and staff suspended. And it's talking about how um, last weekend, um, Drew Harris, the Garda commissioner, suspended eight Gardaí who were accused of failing to prosecute motorists for a variety of traffic offences at the behest of a senior colleague. Now, I, as a trade unionist, I'd have concerns around, maybe I'm picking this up wrong, but it seems that Gardaí are being told by their employer, their, 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 someone further up the chain of command, to drop charges against people. And now these Gardaí are being suspended on the back of being of following orders. But it goes through more. It says a chief superintendent who sent lewd texts to a female college, colleague um, and then made inappropriate remarks to the female Garda, he has been suspended as well. But some of those suspended, this is the bit, this is the doozy, this is the big bit. Some of those suspended are accused of involvement in organized crime and drug dealing. And it's a throwaway comment. There's no explanation of what exactly they're up to. And there's no, you know, it's a, it's a very small, less than an eighth of the page article. And I just thought, Jesus Christ, there, there needs to be more about this stuff. And um, that's the... I'm pretty sure that's... Sorry, Dave, I thought so I didn't mean to talk across you there. I'm pretty sure that's about a case that's ongoing down in Limerick. Right. Um, so a bit of like, I, I think maybe that's why there's not a huge amount of reporting around it at the moment. But I mean, I think that there should be. And I also think that the Gardaí as an institution are corrupt to the core. So none of this is surprising in the least to any of us, I'm sure. Um, nor is the media's like lack of interest in any kind of serious reporting on us. <laughs> no, I, I, I was just going to, I agree with you completely on that stuff. And, and there's actually Catherine Murphy from the Social Democrats, who's a spokesperson on, on justice issues, has said like this, this shows that there's a, a real attempt to tackle the corruption that goes on within the Gardaí and she welcomes it and all the rest of it. But the fact that the media is not all over this is just incredible to me. It, but that, that, that's part of what allows the corruption in the guards to go on unchecked, isn't it? The, the lack of willingness in the media to tackle it. And yeah. as well, if you think of how, how many of the stories make it into the papers because of guard sources and stuff like that, um, you know, sometimes... If you cozy your relationship, you're right, Claire. Yeah. Um, I want to just kind of pivot to one of the big stories of the week here, and it's actually around the... Art, uh, a report on the numbers of women and children contacted contacting domestic violence services really, really kind of frightening numbers. Um, basically, it says the numbers equate to 575 new women, so kind of contacted for the first time at 98 new children every month. I mean, 575 women every month are contacting, uh, like, Safe Ireland or one of the refuges for the first time. Like, that is just an extraordinary number. To me, or I'm sure Sinead, it's not surprising in the least that this is kind of happening out there. It's just that, um, that for it to reach breaking point, you know, the, the kind of the breaking point that's that's happening is happening um, at a much kind of bigger scale, scale than there was before. Obviously, people are confined to the home. I mean, there's been a huge amount of conversation around this during COVID. It's absolutely, it, for me, it's been one of the most upsetting things throughout uh, throughout the lockdowns. Is thinking of the. The, the women and children that stuck in homes with absolutely no kind of release valve, not being able to get out anywhere, having somebody in the house all day that might otherwise have been in work or may, they might be, you know, potentially drinking, uh, you know, earlier in the day, they're taking their own frustrations out on their family. Like it's just absolutely devastating. But 
more importantly, I suppose, what this highlights is for years, the domestic violence and domestic abuse charities have been talking about and services have been talking about how they're so underfunded and there's just not enough services there. The vast majority of them like aren't directly funded or ran by the HSE or TUSLIT. Um, and the, one, the the last one that was was actually closed last year. Um, some of them rely hugely on, on funding. I was actually at a, a governance course with somebody who ran a, a domestic violence refuge um, about two years ago. And she told me that they were given back a third of their funding because of the stipulations that came with it. So basically they wouldn't be able to speak out about a certain element of what was happening. And to her, that kind of advocacy and education piece and awareness building was one of the most important things they did. So she was actually given back a third of their funding, which could potentially impact the service they could provide and make them fully reliant on fundraising. Um, so the whole funding model around domestic uh, violence, domestic abuse organisations is really bad. We also, how we calculate the need here is different to how most European countries and other places in the world calculate it. So when they put out the report saying, you know, we have everything we need, like we're up to scratch in terms of, you know, how many services are needed for how many families type thing. It's actually not true. The the, the bar that they're setting is a very low bar um, and it's, it's just chronically underfunded. And I, I really hope that these kind of reports and that this coming into the, the public space a little bit more might do something about it because it's just, it's a, it's a real abdication of duty, for, you know, on some of the most vulnerable and at risk people in the country. Yeah, and that that funding that you're that funding model that you're talking about, Claire, the money that comes with strings attached, it's a huge funding model of the HSE, and I would love to see that made completely, um, in my, like in, unworkable by any government of the day. In it, like, it should not be the case that an advocacy group, and it doesn't just happen in in domestic violence supports, it happens right across all advocacy and support groups. Money comes with strings attached, and the strings attached are invariably that. It's an attempt to clip the wings of the advocacy group or, or funding group or, or support group, sorry, um, in, an, an, in an attempt to undermine the support that they give their community and also the light that they throw on their, the conditions that their communities live in. Um, so, so domestic violence is a particularly um, heinous example of this, I suppose, because there's been so much work done by such amazing, um, strong, powerful women and other survivors in this area in speaking out in saying you know what this happened to me I, I was I was there and the abdication of responsibility of those who are in positions of power and can do something about this and are choosing to leave women and children and others in positions of just the most horrendous danger and violence and abuse is it's just unfathomable to me I cannot understand how people would do that and sleep at night there's, there's actually, there's a really good, um, there's, good, there's an art, long form article in yesterday's Irish Times done by Roisin Ingle in a tr- an interview with Patricia McLean, um, who is Don McLean's ex-wife, um, and who contacted Irish Times after they published a syndicated art, uh, um, interview from The Guardian, um, which was an interview with Don McLean by Rob Walker. And Don McLean was allowed to, in that, say that his ex-wife is the worst person he ever knew and there's nobody who compares, was republished on the Irish Times without any thought to the fact that Don McLean has, in fact, been convicted um, of violence against his wife. Their children both support their mother in her experiences. Um, Like, Don McLean has to be removed from the house that he shared with his wife after trying to batter down the door of their of their bathroom to get to where she thought she was going to die, and the lack of thought and the, the the fact that that just goes so unchallenged in the media from 
powerful men who are allowed then to use their positions of power to re-victimize the people who have survived them even further is it's 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 in a nutshell everything that is wrong with society's attitude to men who are abusers yeah and as well i think there is an issue and listen there's some brilliant people there are some brilliant journalists that are working on this i think like um Aoife Grace Moore and Ellen Coyne particularly have done some really, really great articles over the past couple of months. But I, yeah, Ellen Coyne in particular is a journalist who just shines all the light in all the on all the right places and is like yeah. a dog with a bone when it comes to Ireland's dirty secrets. Cannot yeah. recommend her work strongly enough. Yeah, brilliant. And I remember when the Women's Aid report a couple of months ago came out and I did this little thread on Twitter about how I had lived in a refuge as a kid and how, you know, my own experience kind of growing up around domestic violence. And now, this is stuff I'd spoken about before, so I didn't really, it was kind of just a couple of tweets I threw out, didn't think too much of it. The, um, the amount of journalists, radio show, like the amount of people that had contacted me wanting me to go on things and talk about it. And I didn't at the time for kind of various reasons, but it came, and I think some of them had very good intentions, but I do think there's a huge interest in hearing people's stories, hearing people's trauma, hearing the kind of, even if it's not done in a salacious way, there's a, the, the human stories people always want to cover. but it doesn't, or certainly not nearly enough, it doesn't go down into the deep-rooted reasons why this happens and also the structural, um, again, like the lack of funding for domestic violence services or the fact that funding comes with strings or how we actually help people. You know, we, we individualise it and we kind of, we lift individual women and families up on these pedestals and say, aren't you amazing for, for getting through this and aren't you amazing for speaking out? And they are, like totally. But how it's portrayed again it, it allows us to look away then and not look at the structural problems that problems that keep allowing this to happen and also that you know prevent women from getting help because i i know my mom's life was probably saved you know because we got a we got a, a refuge place and we had to live in a couple of hostels before we even got that there are women being torn away from refuges daily because there's no space and it is absolutely criminal and it just shouldn't be allowed to continue and that was happening even before the pandemic hit. So the thoughts of what's going on now is just, it's its horrifying. Um, and, and just like what, what you're talking about there, the, the kind of nearly re-victimization of women who speak out, not intentionally by, by journalists who presumably do have the best intentions, but the lack of, the lack of then follow-up support for people who have revisited some of the most horrific experiences in their lives and have aired them out in public and who are then almost thrown to the dogs of public commentary um, is something that I think needs to be considered more in how we talk about things and how we expect survivors to come and be the per and that's that's another aspect we require of women and children and others who survived domestic violence to be the perfect victim we don't there's no space in the narrative allowed for imperfection you can't um, you can't ever have been drunk yourself if you're a survivor of an alcoholic ex who was violent against you, you can't ever have been anything other than perfect, long-suffering and always putting your children first. Yeah. And, and just on that point that you made there about this happening before the pandemic, when I own a brain who's, who's left us now, but he uh, asked me to help launch his book two years ago in Navin, and we did a, a talk up there, and one of the speakers spoke about how so many women in the area are trapped in um, domestic abuse situations because of the housing crisis. And, you know, Absolutely. really powerful speech. And you can only imagine what it's been like for people in that situation the last nine, 10, 11 months during this year, um, as there's no housing solutions and there's very little else um, 
very little help that they can get. Um, we're nearly out of time, so I'm going to just wrap up my end of it and ask you guys if you have any very last-minute ones to throw in. I've got two very small, brief articles. One is um, just shines a light on the Irish taxation system and how we're being... Well, I, I was going to say how we're being abused, but we're not. We're, we're helping companies to abuse um, their obligation to pay taxes all over the world. Decathlon, which is a, a French sports retail giant, um, reports nearly €6 billion Euros in sales and they moved their operations to Ireland in 2016 um, and they paid £5.4 in corporation tax here, which I worked it out now. I know you don't pay corporation tax on your sales anyway, but to give you an idea of the amount of tax that they paid on their sales was 0.09% um, on, on the amount of sales that they had of $6 billion. They had $12 billion last year, by the way, which they ran to Ireland. But a really interesting part of the article is that they opened their first store in Ireland only last year. So they've been running their taxes through Ireland since 2016, and they only opened their, their, their only store in Ireland um, in Ballymun last year. And I have one funny one before we finish up, and I know Claire might have a funny one as well. Um, I, I, I say funny one, I'll probably get beaten up for this one, but the church criticizes penal law candles tax. And this is about the state repealing the... Um, the exemption that the churches have on candles and, and they don't have to pay VAT whatsoever for, for all the candles that you burn in memory of people or whatever you're using them for. And Hold then, on a second. Hold on a second. You're telling me that period products and kids are, and um, some items of clothing you have to pay VAT on, but they don't have to pay VAT on candles. You can pay VAT on your condoms, but you don't have to pay it on your candles. Um, but the uh, it's it, yeah it's it's a fascinating story about how the church has reacted to this and they've compared the the paying of VAT on these candles to the penal laws and I just found it Jesus are these guys in touch with reality whatsoever especially in this year but they're not like <laughs> it's what they're definitely not they're definitely not here they can come back to me when they've paid their various settlements to the survivors of church abuse and then they can cry me a river about their vat and candles and I'll consider this yeah. Well, that, well, that's a great point. Maybe we can ring fence the vat um, that they're going to pay on candles and we can put it towards the, the, the victims of the survivors of abuse. Claire, you wanted to come in on a story there at the end. Just, yeah, like there are kind of a couple of kind of funny stories of the week. One thing I wanted to touch on was the Christmas ads this week. I have been an absolute wreck. Like, usually I'd be a bit cynical and I'd be like, oh, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's companies trying to just pull up the heartstrings to make some money. But Jesus, with COVID, I mean, the... Um, the super value ad that you know I won't ruin it for anybody but it, I wasn't expecting it because I thought I knew what was coming and then when it came I absolutely it was like a sucker punch but the the Woody's ad I mean more importantly and Carly Bailey made this point on Twitter and I think it was so you know valid that um, it, it portrays a young person in a really good light and I think we need a lot more of that because we haven't seen enough of that through COVID there's been a lot of kind of demonising the young people and it's just a really it was a really lovely twist on it but yeah go Google all of them if you want to go cry because I have been in an absolute state this week um, one mad story before I'm going to go to Sinead um, Gardaí and Bun Crana attended so they got a call to say that there was masked and hooded men with guns outside a, a garage Um God love the poor man who, who was in the garage because he 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 thought that, I don't know whether he thought he was being robbed or what the story was, but somebody around the garage, they turned up. Turns out they saw on CCTV, they'd been recording a rap video. And I just, like, it, I, it was hilarious reading it first. And then when I read into it, I was like, the poor man. Imagine he went in and locked himself inside thinking that, so you know, those people with guns outside, just another one of those random stories of the week. But, um, I think Sinead is going to talk about the most important story to the country this week because it's really... Absolutely. I have been hanging on to this 
this has been brimming with excitement inside me the whole chat. I'm here to talk about Wild Mountain Time, which is surely the joy of the week. In a week that had four seasons total landscaping, Dominic Cummins being kicked out of 10, 10 Downing Street, uh, Leo Varadkar finally being less Teflon than usual. Wild Mountain Time is the joy that has been giving me more than anything. If you're on social media at all, you will have seen this utterly horrendous, wogeous trailer for the new traditional Irish romance movie. People watch this and then and we're like, oh, sure, it's set in the 50s. Like, what, what, what do you care? And then Emily Blunt makes a throwaway comment about freezing her eggs. And they're like, hang on a second. This is supposed to be nowadays. <laughs> she has, so there's Emily Blunt, Jamie Dornan and Christopher Walken all doing the most horrendous Irish accents I've ever heard. And Jamie, Jordan, Jamie Irish. Dornan. How is he so bad at doing an Irish accent? It makes no sense. Normally. Apparently, I know, like, come on. Apparently it's based on a play called Outside Mullingar, which Deborah Messing was in on Broadway. And if you want to really torment yourself, go and look up the clip, the YouTube clip from that. It is so, her accent, it's so bad. Move over far and away. Far and away has nothing on this. And like, there's nothing Irish Twitter loves more than a good yank objectification of Irish romantic characteristics. It's just, it, 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 the rage, it just fuels us. It brings us so much joy. Emily, Do- Emily Blunt has fucking muck on her face. She's like contoured with muck instead of blusher. She, uh, it's just, uh, go watch it if you haven't seen the trailer. You're going to hate it. It'll make you so happy. The director actually... The director actually came out and has said it's directed for the American audience, not the Irish audience, which is just an admission that they really feed into that over there. Like if an Irish person in America goes for an acting job, they're actually told that their accent isn't right. Like and they they have to put in put on this kind of leprechaun patty accent. Like it's just it's mad. Yeah, but that's a good one to wrap up on. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, we'll finish it up there. Um, I want to thank our guests. I want to thank Owen O'Brien, who's left us already. Uh, but I want to thank uh, as well Sinead Redmond, anarchist and activist, uh, for the uh, brilliant contributions we've had again today. And this has been the week of oh. work. Before we leave, sorry, um, the, we're, the week of work is one of the podcasts associated with the project Left Block. Um, you can find out more information about Left Block on our Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash Left Block. Um, it's a, a project about bringing new media, alternative media, but also about political education. Um, if you want to support us, you can do it there, but you can also just get some information and follow us on social media. And don't forget as well on the week at work, this podcast, give us a, a like and a share and subscribe and, and get the word out there because we're, we're, we're trying to cover the stories that aren't being covered. Or we're trying to give them a different perspective as you can hear from our, our commentary today. Uh, and I want to thank again, Claire O'Connor, our host, uh, my co-host here. Um, and thank you very much. Thank you.